Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guests are authors and dear friends Ellen O'Donnell, a child psychologist, and Reverend Molly Basket, pastor of a progressive Christian church in Berkeley, California. When they became parents, they read many books on parenting, many of them great, but all lacking practical suggestions that would help their family spiritually and psychologically. So together they wrote Bless This Mess, a modern-day guide to faith and parenting in a chaotic world. In it, they offer parents a roadmap on how spirituality and modern science can together help parents and kids at every stage of development thrive. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Molly Basket and Ellen O'Donnell. Molly, Ellen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Your new book, co-authored, is Bless This Mess, A Modern Guide to Faith and Parenting in a Chaotic World. Now, you two met as young parents, no? Is that correct? We did. Yeah, that's right. My son, Luke, was just a baby in a sling, just a couple months old, and Molly's Rafe was two years old, and he's now, well, Luke's 15, and Rafe's 17? 17 going on Yikes. 22. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys share in the book, It's it was not, you had some bonding experiences over parenting moments that were not like your sports center all-star moments, right? You guys are <laughs> right. admitting like, look, I might have lost a little bit too much with my kids. Right. <laughs> Am I terrible? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's interesting. You, you bonded over that stuff. In the world of competitive parenting, which New England is particularly good at. So Ellen was coming to my church. I was a young pastor. Um, I was pa- solo pastor of a church that was struggling, but had a really strong heart, had a lot of, you know, willingness to risk and be creative. And ours were pretty much the only kids when we were just starting out. Um, and I was still figuring out how to be a pastor, you know, kind of how to present, how to hold my authority. But then Ellen put her son, her, her baby in my toddler's daycare and we started to carpool and we got to see a lot of each other, a lot more of each other's backstage. Like when my kid who was, um, you know, has always been really his own person was taking 25 minutes to put his socks on and that's when he wanted to. And I was, he was melting down and I was melting down and Ellen would walk in and see all of that. It was hard not to be real. And I would breathe a big sigh of relief because I'd be like, look at this. Even the pastor doesn't have it all together, you know, frantically trying to get there on time to pick Rafe up. And I was happy to take him without any clothes on because it made me feel a lot less alone. It do, I mean, it's interesting because that's a that's a liberating story and, and or it can be right. I mean, if you let go of a certain perception of parents, my, parenting, my my friend. David Zoll just wrote a book called Seculosity, which has been really well received. The subtitle is how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. And his argument is that we may become becoming seemingly more secular, but we're no less religious. And we just, it becomes CrossFit or politics or being a foodie or parenting, right? And and so if parenting is your religion and, and you're trying to convince everybody that you're good at it, it often precludes the kind of interaction that made you all friends and actually helped, you know, was the context for produ- production of this book, right? Yep. 
Right. Yeah. And what does it do to our kids? Because if parenting is a religion, then our children are idols or they're little gods instead of fully human people who are still developing, who, you know, should be allowed to make mistakes and not have us feel like we are responsible for that and have to protect, defend, deny, dissociate. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's Emily Oster who wrote a book recently about how all of the actual data on parenting techniques is really conflictual, right? That there is, if you really did a meta analysis of every recommendation for how to put your baby to sleep and how to get your toddler out in the morning and all of this stuff, there's no scientific consensus on the techniques. But I think that's, yeah, it's true. Parenting has become kind of this competitive sport and this obsession for a lot of mostly middle to upper middle class white people like us. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there's no one right way to do a lot of this stuff. And so I think that's really what we found with each other, that we were talking more about kind of our values around parenting and the kind of parents we wanted to be, the kind of kids we wanted to raise more than just how do I get them out of the house in the morning? Um, And so we had to get over that first step of kind of being vulnerable and acknowledging to one another that we don't have this all figured out. We don't, not every day goes perfect or goes smoothly. Um, and that allowed us to start talking about, for me, something that's much bigger than just how to put your kid to sleep at night, how to get them to eat their vegetables. And each of us had something that their person needed. So, you know, I'm the pastor and I thought faith, my faith would really help me. And it did a lot of the times, but um, in really emotional moments, it, it grounded me to have Ellen's wisdom from psychological science, you know, sort of here's what the data says. And likewise, Ellen could turn to me as her pastor and a person of faith to reach deep into our um, spiritual spiritual practices and ancient wisdom um, to kind of undergird her own parenting. So science and religion together in concert, you know, in, in amity and comedy. Is it weird? becoming friends because you're both in professions that stress boundaries you know and and well i mean it sounds like ellen you weren't necessarily molly's therapist at least not on the clock but molly you were her pastor is that kind of do you guys was it an awkward negotiating technique or dance when you're like okay uh do we get too close do we have to call in the uh you know the ethical board to see if we should be friends (laughs) that play out that's a really good question Yeah, definitely. You know, especially, you know, when I, so I've moved, I'm in California now. Ellen's moved out to the suburbs from Somerville, the, the inner city church where we were. Um, and that distance has allowed us, you know, we're not in a dual relationship anymore. We're just friends. But when I was her pastor, I really wanted to make sure I didn't overshare so that I could be her pastor because pastors in a sense like therapists need to be kind of a blank slate. I didn't want to have to put her in the position of having to pastor me. Um, but I also really believe, you know, that was my second church. In my first church, it was really hard to figure out what the boundaries were. And so I set them really strongly. In my second church, um, particularly, particularly with that congregation, I was able to relax a little more and, and be more integrated to be my whole self all the time as someone who got her own therapist. You know, Ellen was um, my parishioner and a great person to talk to and a friend in a sense. But um, I knew when, when my son was three and I was regularly losing my temper too much that it was time for me to get my own therapist. And I did. Yeah. I think too, 
I mean, it's definitely been something that we have talked about and negotiated probably most explicitly when we ultimately decided to actually write the book together, um, because we did decide to write the book when we were both still in Somerville. But I think, um, I mean, this is the experience, I think, for lots of therapists and lots of pastors that sometimes life also just forces you to be more open and transparent and real and to have to cross and think about crossing boundaries. So, um, you know, in part, Molly's recommending the the daycare that Rafe and Luke went to, to me, was out of desperation. It was incredibly hard at that time to find daycare in Boston. And I was about to start my internship at MGH and literally had no place to send Luke. Um, so I think, you know, Molly probably felt like I've got to tell her about this great place that probably has an opening. Um, Molly also went through an experience of having cancer while she was pastor in Somerville. And it just so happened at that time that I was actually working with a program at Mass General that provides parent guidance for parents who have cancer about how to talk to their kids. So I think sometimes too, you know, whatever your faith system is, however you want to think about that, whether it's fate or God or the universe or whatever, putting you in the path of somebody else at a particular place and time, that just seemed to happen with Molly and I on a number of different occasions that we kind of had to have those conversations about, look, I can't deny that this is a little bit of a different relationship. Um, How are we going to work that out? Yeah. And, and you, you say, said a moment ago, it's often the upper middle class or people with some resources that can turn parenting into an idol or religion or something. And it's interesting also, it's often those people that are hit with loneliness in our culture, right? That Where you're, you know, you have a lot of material resources, but also we're often living in our own private Idaho with cul-de-sacs and things like this. So, so oftentimes yeah. that, that people need what you all found in each other, but often just don't know how to get it, right? It's yeah. just, it's hard to be, it's hard to learn how to make adult friends. Their wealth has insulated them and, and actually impoverished them spiritually in other ways. I mean, the Bible's rife with Jesus telling stories about how hard it is for rich people to rely on God because they really think they can rely on the things and money that um, that do buffer them from a lot of hardship in life, but cannot buffer them from everything. We're all going to suffer. And those of us who know we need to rely on each other, um, who know we're made to be interdependent are going to suffer a lot less. Yeah. It's, and it's related to the reason why I'm a child psychologist and not an adult therapist, to be honest. I like having access to a person's context. Um, and with kids, you get that. You have to interact with their parents, their teachers, their siblings. Um, and when adults put themselves in therapy, it can still be a really isolated and isolating experience because you go to this room and you talk to this person who may not know firsthand anything else about the context in which you live in your life. Everything is filtered through that one person's perspective. Um, and I do think sometimes things get missed or lost in that. You all talk about parenting as a spiritual practice. And I love this. You say, because it takes us to our highest highs and our lowest lows while helping us mature alongside the the kids, that there's a developmental thing. I, I was thinking 
several times as I was reading your book. This is from Frank Lake, who was a psychiatrist. He died in like the early 80s, but this is like a thousand page tome where he's trying to help pastors and pastoral counselors talk to theologians and, and theologians talk to psychiatrists, things like that. But he says that basically when, when, when we think that our humanity is a container that, you know, that ought to have something good in it, uh, you know, and we open it up the cupboard and it's bare, it's a problem. But he says, while we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We're not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time it turns into a satisfactory channel. And I I found myself coming back to that quote in my head as I was reading your book, because it seems like something like that undergirds your book the whole way through that, look, don't like lean into some of the vulnerability, lean into the, you, you talk about the significance of relinquishing control. Like, a love is kind of the opposite of control and, 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 and relinquishing control of the expectations for your kids to be something, you know, like in your own image or something. It seems that so often, right. A lot of the stuff you talk about is this juncture where it's the container versus the channel thing. Right. And, and you seem to continually encourage people to lean into the channel thing. Like, like it's okay to, to, you know, you talk about parenting as good enough, right? <laughs> yeah. And we think we say multiple times in the book that perfect love casts out fear and fear is what drives us to be controlling. Um, and so if we're going to love our kids perfectly, if we're going to love ourselves perfectly, we have to continually work to let go of fear and let go of control. Um, and that there's this difference, right, between being in control and being controlling, trying to control the outcome. Um, and really just that we're all still becoming. That's really where we land at the end of the book. Our kids are still becoming and we're still becoming. We're, we all continue to have room to grow and develop and understand ourselves better and become better versions of ourselves until the day we die. So that should really inform our families and our parenting, I think. One form of being vulnerable as parents we talk about in the book is being willing to apologize to our kids when we make mistakes, which is not to say, you know, if, if you are hurting your child chronically, you know, abusers are then remorseful and then things build up again, they do it again. I'm, we're not advocating that at all, but just to say that, you know, we should be more mature than our kids. Obviously we're older, we have more resources, we have more power than they do, Um but it's okay to, for your kids to see you as a whole person. I mean, obviously, when they're really young and in that super narcissistic phase, they're not going to, but um, they'll still appreciate an apology and you're still modeling for them how to do it, you know, how to make amends when you've made a mistake. And as they get older, it will allow them to be more, to have empathy for you as well and to appreciate that you respect them as a whole human being enough to apologize when you have screwed up. I think with the uh, so many of the older teenagers and young adults I work with who are struggling with whether or not to maintain a relationship with a parent or how to maintain a relationship with a parent, if they're questioning that, it's not because there was one, you know, huge blowout or smack across the face or something that was the dividing line. It was, you know, what is it? Death by a thousand cuts. It was all these little things over time, this pattern that just doesn't seem to change. And that's what really can push parents and kids apart. So um, I can actually give an example from a book talk that I did last week. Afterward, my oldest was there. 
He's 15 now, and he just had his first job this summer. So one of my colleagues who knew he's been working on a farm all summer came up and told him, you know, said like, oh, sounds like you've had a really busy summer, and, you know, you've been working and whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's been kind of a lot. Um well, my own ego and worries and fear has been that in spite of his having a job and having a great summer, he's been spending a whole lot of time on YouTube watching The Office. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of made some little sarcastic comment to that effect, like, yeah, kind of busy, but still plenty of time to, you know, watch every episode of The Office three times. And it was a dig. I don't know why I did it, except that it's my own worries for him and him not being motivated enough or whatever. Um, and he stayed with me to come home afterward. And as we were walking to the car, I apologized. It just, cause I saw the look on his face. I just saw this little teeny shift of like, mom, like, why'd you have to say that? And it was like, I didn't have to say that. I shouldn't have said that. So I apologized on the way out, you know, and he didn't really like big time acknowledge it. It wasn't this big aha moment, but I just felt like, Oh, I've got to acknowledge I just made a little cut there. That's not okay because those will build up. I want to go back to Ella. A few minutes ago, you were talking about perfect love casting out all fear. And that word perfect, uh, the scriptural word actually means complete. So, you know, we're never going to love perfectly. What is it to even love perfectly? Like love is love. But we've all had those moments we were just filled with so much love, just overwhelmed with love for our child. And we're definitely not going to feel that in every moment. But opening our hearts to feel that more often. And, and some of that, you know, what allows that love in Ellen was you being humble in that moment that allowed you to love him perfectly in that moment. You say something that in the book that it's so interesting because I felt I was playing with it and how many times you could sort of change the wording. It'd be true because you say when we get too caught up in how our children behave and how what they do reflects on us as parents who become what psychologists call ego involved. And I was thinking you could say, we get too cut up with how our coworkers behave and, and, or, or, or our parishioners oh, yeah. behave. Or, yeah. Yeah, but, but here, I mean, you're talking parenting that this sort of like uh, somebody told me once that the beginning of spiritual wisdom is knowing where you end and the world begins. Yeah. And that there, there's, some, there's, you guys harp on that constantly that there's, that you, you, you need to sort of have that ability to differentiate, right? It's so that you can really love them to be free to love them because, you know, they're, you're, you're, sense of self isn't completely bound up with them. Yep. It's self-differentiation, not just you from your kids, but you from yourself, right? So, I mean, that's a huge part of, it's the reason I'll say kind of jokingly, like I'm no parenting expert, um, but also because I need to separate out my psychologist self from my parent self. Those are two different roles, two different places in my life. And yeah, they overlap, but there has to be some differentiation there because certainly if I walked around thinking everything my kids do and decide reflects somehow on me as a child psychologist, like that's just not a road I want to go down. That's not going to be healthy. You also talk about the, this holy trinity of parenting, right? That, that we have these needs to be autonomous and to feel competent and to feel related to those around us, right? And it's sort of, the, this is like the airline metaphor, right? Like put secure your own oxygen mask first before you try to secure, you know, that of a dependent or a kid or something or, or another relative. That, that without these things, right? Without or at least tending to these things, we'll, we'll never have them perfectly, but without making those things a priority, right? It's going to, it's going to spill in deleteriously into the life of that child. 
I think it's a dance. I mean, I think self, we can talk about self differentiation and that can quickly become a different form of idolatry, like our own kind of narcissism. Um, it's especially when our kids are young and they're really dependent on us physically. I think we do have to put their needs first, but we also have to take care of ourselves. So we'll be able to keep taking care of them. And so I think it's a constant kind of toggle between the two. Um, but I like, you know, to, I use self-differentiation theory, family systems theory a lot in my work as a pastor because it really helps me stay more calmly connected to my people when, you know, things aren't always going great. You know, pastors come under fire a lot because if you're really leading, you're going to take some hits. Um, and, you know, I have a, a coach who's really wonderful, Quaker, um, Quaker man, and um, he talks about God. You know, when Moses asked God's name, God said, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. And so that act of self-defined, of kind of standing in your, in your eye, um, really can help you be rooted in a way that will let other people be themselves and not have this emotional fusion that's always knocking you off kilter. Yeah, I think it's um, what I was getting there too, Scott, I think is really interesting. We're talking about people's needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness in terms of our kids. But I think you were picking up on it too in terms of parents' needs, right? Everyone yeah, needs yeah. to feel autonomous, competent, and related. And so how are we as parents getting those needs met? And where I think we get into trouble is if we're relying on our kids entirely to meet those needs. Yes. Um, and so you know, yeah, that can get into tricky mommy culture, mommy wars, whatever you want to say about how invested should I be with my kids? Should I have a career? Should I not have a career if it's a choice for you, et cetera? But like, let's just not debate the particulars, but get back to the essence that no one, no one person in your life should be the source of meeting all of your needs. You need to get your needs met in all different kinds of ways and through different kinds of relationship and spiritual practice, parenting being just one of them. We should be working ourselves out of a job. You know, we're successful if our children leave, leave, but stay connected to us emotionally. We've done our job. That's really our primary job. And I do worry for parents who, um, find themselves in a position that when their kids are ready to leave might feel like they don't have anything left, right? That that they've lost themselves in launching their kid. I think that's a, a huge problem. And I, I mean, it's just a reality of the, you know, points of divorce too. I can't tell you how many kids I have in my practice who, you know, even just a couple weeks into their freshman year of college, get the phone call from across the country. Yeah, mom and I are going to get a divorce. Like it's, it's, there's, there's nothing left there. They've been hanging on entirely for their kids. Um, and again, I don't want to get into like, is that a good thing or a bad thing for each individual family, but just kind of going back to this bigger picture of what do people need and how do you get those needs met? Ellen, I remember you telling me very early on in our friendship about Eric, your husband's dad, yeah. saying to Eric when Eric was a boy, something like, I love you and your brother so much, but your mom comes first. And yeah, that's he, he literally the way it has used to, to be. say, yeah, he literally used to tell them in kind of a joking way, like, I love you so much, but I love your mom more. Kind of, <laughs> you know, and it was sort of this little joke because of course they knew that 
their dad loved them unconditionally, wholeheartedly, but he was just reminding them, like, we also have this relationship separate from you guys that is incredibly important to us and that is going to be there long after we launch you guys and you're gone. The the guy quoted uh, uh, a few minutes ago, Frank Lake, the psychiatrist. This is a great section in that book where he, had, he has these all these interesting charts and he talks about what happens in early develop, developmental stages when you get the message that you're accepted as a gift, your acceptance is a gift versus a reward mm. and how much peace comes with acceptance as a gift with mm. all your imperfections and frailty versus acceptance being held out as a reward. It, it just strikes me that so many places in our culture, everything is acceptance as reward, even in the church, whether you're in a sort of progressive wing of the church or conservative wing of the church, it's just generally a different kind of reward. Right? If you, you either do this set of practices and you're accepted, right? Whether it's, whether faith, it's sort faith of, versus works or right, right, yeah. right. And, and so often it's hard to find a place where parents can find acceptance as a gift so that they can give it to their kids. Right. Yeah. So they can be, so you they can be non-perfection. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, is, and since part of, you know, you guys even talk in the intro of the book, like this is, uh, you know, why one more book on parenting? Well, because there's certain kinds of deficiencies in, 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 in kind of, self-help parenting books we've seen and Christian parenting books we've seen. And that, that, I mean, it seems like you guys are trying to create a space where parents can be whole people yes, and, and be accepted, you know, unconditionally in their own being so that they can then take that their kids on that journey. Yeah. Right. It's sort of the next step after, I think there's a lot out there in this kind of joking way about, you know, um, you know, mommy wine and the drinks and like, oh, this is so hard. And it's, and, and it's humor and it's funny and it, and it's vulnerable in a way, but we're really wanting to go another full step, right? Uh, Go a little deeper here. Uh, It's been really interesting to me that, um, you know, my mom's read the book a couple times now. <laughs> being being a good mom, she's read the book a couple times. And she came to um, one of the talks and she has said more than once that what she took away most from the book was this idea of good enough parenting and that she wishes that somebody had said that to her 40 years ago. And this is somebody, my, you know, my mom's got a master's in elementary education. She was an elementary school guidance counselor. She gave me half the parenting books I own. It's not like she wasn't reading stuff and immersed in this, but she's saying, I never heard that. And I really wish I'd heard that, you know? Well, and I think the things the whole mommy wine jokey culture doesn't really get at is that, you know, is, is this really, I mean, there's nothing wrong with wine and moderation, but is that co-signing a substance abuse issue? Um, or is it, you know, how do you really want a parent? Like, can you be accepted, um, fully as you are and also reach for something else? Like we, we quote Anne Lamott saying, God loves you just as you are and loves you too much to let you stay that way. Right. So around the time I decided to get my own therapist, I think Rafe was three then. I found three years old much more challenging than two. Um, I came into, I dropped him off one day at daycare and burst into tears with Linda, our totally amazing face of God daycare provider, because I had spanked him that morning. And spanking was never something I wanted to do. You know, I wasn't seriously spanked as a kid, but enough to know that this is not how I wanted to parent. And I burst into tears and I made my confession to her because confession is really is good for the soul. Not something progressive Christians do a lot, but I think is very healing. Um, And wise Linda said something like, well, 
it is a short-term strategy. I mean, it got you here this morning, but it's probably not what you want to do every day. It's probably not going to be your go-to. And she said it in the most tender, loving way that I got to finish crying, but those are really cathartic tears rather than, you know, shame tears. And that was a moment I needed to really encourage me to get into therapy. Pastors are the worst. You know, we think, well, we should have it all together and um, we shouldn't need these other things. You know, we have faith, we have, we're the leaders and we need it just as much as anyone else because we're just as human as anybody else. And in fact, it's when pastors think they're invulnerable and sort of believe their own press that we get into serious trouble. It's interesting too, because as you were talking, I was thinking that this, the mommy wine culture stuff, is that so much acceptance as a gift versus a group to lament or be snarky about how we all feel acceptance is a reward, but it never gets us past the reward thing, right? <laughs> There's right, this right. recognition that we're not getting reward. the, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So it we keeps got us in this sort of feedback. So, yeah. We made yeah. it till four. Now we can have our first glass of wine, you know, right. Whereas if we could really, you know, Richard Rohr talks about getting our fix from all the way at the top, meaning really trusting that God loves us and accepts us without judgment, um, we wouldn't need the wine, right? Because we could call on that. We could regularly go to that place and get the fix that God loves us, that we're good enough parents all the way from deep inside ourselves. Because we're that open channel that you spoke about, you know? God's always moving through us. God's spirit is always moving through us. Or the forgiveness, right? Like Linda gave you that day, Molly, the forgiveness yeah. to move past the shame to do better next time. Yes. Um, that that's the goal of confession and absolution isn't just to say, okay, now I can go back and do it again, right? right. Um, but how am I going to do different like, or do better next time? Yeah. And I think, too, the other piece you're getting at, Scott, is, and this was kind of an aha for me very, a long time ago when I was first learning about self-determination theory and intrinsic motivation, that acceptance seems like this very positive word, positive thing, but acceptance can be controlling, right? Yeah. Acceptance can undermine autonomy support if it's contingent. And acceptance is contingent on you doing certain things or being a certain way or behaving a certain way, then it's controlling. Um, if we're bribing, if we're withholding affection, you know, those are all forms of control that progressive parents use too. Um, you know, we don't have to be fundamentalists to be authoritarian parents. I remember a big shift happened for me. I don't know if I learned this from you, Ellen, or somewhere else. Um, not to say, I'm so proud of you to my yeah. kids, but to say, you must be so proud of yourself. You yeah. know, I, I have two kids who each in their own way are always looking for my approval. One in a very, you know, <laughs> roundabout way, Rafe, and my daughter in a really direct way. Um, and just to kind of recenter herself in herself rather than always looking to me, am I making the right choice? How did I do? But to really help her to listen to her own gut, her own sort of God given, you know, voice, the voice of God from within her to guide her and have her trust that. Yeah. My, um, roommate in grad school, she was in med school at the time and she used to come back from every soccer game. And she at some point picked up on the fact that I would always ask her, how did it go? How'd you feel about how you played? <laughs> she was like, you're the only person who never asks, did you win? <laughs> what was the score? Your first question is always, how'd you feel about how you played in that game? 
you know, that kind of um, putting it back on them or noticing the behavior. I think when I realized that there was this possibility of using acceptance as control, I was like, aha, it's the, you know, this explains Catholic guilt in the best way I ever could have understand it, understood it having grown up Catholic. So if you two would have been my parents, that'd be such a healthier person. <laughs> It's not too late. I don't know. Let's wait and see how our kids, you know, end up. It's too soon to say. (laughs) I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You two use uh, the Kohlberg's moral development theory in a really helpful way throughout the whole book. You know, there was, you know, this idea that, hey, we develop morally in ways that that go from sort of black and white concrete to more abstract and and open and and develop in complexity. and, And that this is really it's a helpful way to understand how we learn morality. There's also been work on this. Uh, Kohlberg did the same thing with faith, how you go from more black and white to, to, to moving and to be able to hold tensions together a lot more helpfully. And you sort of go in several different chapters about, Hey, this is how you deal with this issue, you know, with a preschooler, with a toddler, you know, like with, with someone that's a teenager as they're late teens. I mean, that's, that's incredibly helpful because it, it, it right it it seems that you're able to sort of convey the same values to your children that you want to convey, but in a way you're loving them in a currency they can spend, right? Yeah, meeting them where they're at developmentally, but I think also recognizing as you are that so many of these great psychologists and theorists and developmental psychologists have these um, stage theories, right? That you progress through these stages, um, but. These were smart people. They were never saying that we just go from one stage to the next, to the next, to the next. There was always this kind of tension and diametrics, and you might be going back and forth. You might go back to an earlier stage in a particular situation and then leap forward at another time, and we're all doing that all the time. It's kind of my favorite one of that is uh, sort of uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. It's like, no, she never meant for that to be like you do this and then that and then that and then that. You might be in all of the stages all at once 
when you're grieving. So these aren't meant to be kind of hard, hard and fast Cereal. steps along a path. They're like cycles of grief, not state more more cyclical. Exactly, but yeah. yeah, like a well, tornado, right? And you may you may reach you may reach certain moral stages of moral development in one sphere, but not in another, or in a private sphere, but not in a public sphere. Like thinking about how racism works, and even you know even acknowledging that even to say black and white thinking is sort of you know, there's some racism embedded in that phrase. Um, but thinking about how some people are publicly hold some pretty racist views sort of broadly, but then with, you know, white people with people of color in their family might have really close relationships to those people of color. So that like, where's the disconnect here? Um, and so- meeting our kids where they're at developmentally, we're, we're trying to give parents effective language, but also recognizing that Sometimes we assume our kids are not capable of more complex moral reasoning or understanding nuance. Um, and oftentimes they're very capable, maybe a lot sooner than we think they are, to understand how, you know, grandpa can hold <laughs> seemingly racist views about this and then have that friend over there or whatever it is um, that's happening in their real, in their own lives or in, in stories in the news and around them in the world that we can use those stories to help scaffold their moral development. And maybe if we have the right language for their age and stage, help them move to a more complex way of thinking or reasoning. Yeah. My kids always wanted to know from a very young age, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And that's a really normal question for a two, three, four-year-old. You know, they're trying to make sense of the world and they're trying to feel safe in the world. And they have to know who the bad guys are in order to stay safe. But I would tell them over and over, we're all good and bad all mixed together. You know, I, the theologian you mentioned before talked about being vessels filled with good. Well, we're we're filled with all kinds of things, aren't we? And we're always going to be that way. Um, and you look at the Bible, you don't have to go very far to find like God's first children were defiant, disobedient. His first grand got, did I just say he, God's first grandchild was a murderer. You know, Cain was a murderer. So, um, we have lots of even the heroes in the Bible are really morally mixed and trying to work it out. So there's plenty of room for us to be. Um, in the middle to be good and bad and know we're still loved and held. That's why that vessel versus container is so beautiful too, right? Because then the good and the bad just is moving through you and there's Mm. room for growth. It's not like it's all just building up and going to be there forever. stuck. Defining you. Yeah, and Lake even says it's a vessel for like something like divine energy. I mean, Mm. like not even, he's not even thinking around because you're right that 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 spiritual energy courses through all, yes. like can course through all of us, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? That's, that's the yep. point, right? We're always on the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I love about the book, you guys have a section on bodies and sexuality, which I think is excellent. And one of the phrases that jumped out at me, there's so many specific things in the book I love, which, I mean, part of it is like, if you're reading the book, like a lot of the specifics make sense if you get the foundational stuff and you can say, oh, okay. You, I get, I'm getting the feeling for how this works out, but, but some of the specifics, I love when you say we're not having the talk about sex because it's an ongoing talk. Like we're always developing sexually. We're always trying to get it at home and comfortable with our bodies. So you're not thinking like, all right, 14, I've been, I've been dreading this for 14 years now. Now I'm going to be like, shit, now it's mommy wine time. I have to say vagina or penis and then we're done. Start making the cocktails vagina, now. Let's exactly. down and vagina. get this over with. Exactly. So you're kind of like, hey, like. It'll take some of the anxiety off if you realize you're just beginning a new stage of the journey where you, we're beginning talking 
about what it means to be in, emerging and increasingly sexual. And I, I thought that was such a great way to take the, the kind of pressure off uh, the wrong kind of pressure off. Right. It's not a one and done. Yeah. I thought that was so inviting and liberating. It's a series of difficult, imperfect, awkward, hilarious conversations. (laughs) And we, you know, awkward, the better it's probably going. (laughs) Like anything, the more we do it, the better we get at it. We get a sense of mastery by doing it over and over again. I think we have to follow our kids. Like we don't talk too, too much about this in the book, but you know, like you're saying, every, we hope every chapter kind of circles back in other ways to other chapters. We talk a lot about temperament and your kid's grain and how each kid is an individual. Um, you know, people are very individual in their sexuality, in all that that means, and just how sexual a person is, however you want to understand that. And so our kids are going to bring different things to the table um, beyond even, I'm talking, you know, uh, sexual orientation. orientation. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally beyond that. Like some kids are just going to be ready sooner than others or more just generally sexual even as toddlers and babies than other other kids are um and i think we've got to also continue the conversations ourselves as adults so that we're making sure we're not bringing our own baggage um to as much as possible it's always going to be there if anywhere i think you know that's why we pick the topics we pick sex money you know that's where our baggage is going <laughs> to follow us no matter how hard we try to shed it, but right. we need to keep working on it and try to shed it the best we can, we, or at we, least recognize it and realize how it's impacting us. That's self-differentiation again, saying, you know, going back to our own sexual histories, our own remorse or regret or hurts done to us and healing those, or at least sort of knowing where our wounds are. So we don't kind of act them out on our kids saying, you know, you're not going to make the mistakes I made, or I'm going to protect you and nothing bad's ever going to happen to you like it happened to me. The discussion of sex, I think, is also the one where our ideology or values or whatever you want to say uh, probably comes out the most, too. So it was, in fact, the chapter that we shopped around to publishers to kind of gauge their reactions to where we're coming from. Um, Because, yeah, we're two white, upper middle class, cis, you know, straight, married Christian women, but... (laughs) We hope that chapter makes it clear we might be coming from a little bit of a different place than people might be expecting. Yeah, it's just funny. I was thinking of that saying, like, sex is, you know, everything's about sex. I forget says it. Except sex. Sex is about power. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, it is an interesting thing, right? How all America, these things, for sure. Right, right, yeah, that all this stuff swirls around it, right? And I, I love how you're constantly coming back to this. That like, hey, we're, you're on the way, too, as a person with these things. And to constantly yeah. be aware of that. Uh, it's going to be safer for you and your kids. I I mean, I think, again, that's such a sort of thing that has the real potential to dial down the anxiety that seems so many parents seem just afflicted with the anxiety pressure all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think if you can find a room for gray in sex too, it's going to help you as a parent to ease some of that anxiety, to go back to that, um, you know, phrase we put in there that maybe you sex. can find 50 shades of gray, if maybe 50. <laughs> you yeah. see what I just oh, did there? Lord, that was clever. <laughs> All wow. right. I did not even do that on purpose. My kids um, are not allowed to read that though. No. Just because <laughs> of the sexual content of the no, poor pros. They can read anything. <laughs> they can. Well, that's the point. That's they where can't I'm going, watch right? anything, but they can read anything. That's one of my rules. That good sex is sex that's good for everybody involved. Yeah. So that's really kind of the the moral values based 
kind of place we're coming from. But I'm not sure that I had really worked out my sort of theology of premarital sex until we were writing the book, Ellen. And one of the pieces you brought to me from science was that, you know, the, the data shows that consensual considerate sex among older teens is not psychologically harmful. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, cause the advice I got from my mom was cherish yourself, which was so vague as to be meaningless. And she had, you know, she had a really different sexual history. Um, from me, from, you know, I think what traditional Orthodox Christianity teaches. And um, so I had not really sort of found a place to land. Of course, you know, I would love for my kids to wait till marriage, but I didn't wait till marriage. And how should I, why should I expect that of them? Um, so, you know, that just gave me permission when having the conversation with my now older teen to say, you know, to talk about consent, to talk about, um, you know, to talk about talking with your partner before you do anything to make decisions together. Um, and to talk about how feelings are a big part of sex. I'm going to be a little bit sexist here, but tend to be more for girls and women, you know, more emotionally involved. So be sure that you're really on the same page as you make these decisions. And I think he is a really considerate teenager, you know, young, considerate young man. We've, we've had a lot of these conversations and I know that he is. Martin Luther in the Reformation, I mean, when he, what he imagined when he's developing the catechisms is that the primary faith formation would happen around the kitchen table, not, mm. not just the Lord's table. Yes. And you, got, you, you say that you, parents are really be the primary first pastoral and best figures. spiritual teacher. Yeah, parents that that's are your children's first it, and best spiritual teacher. Yeah, yeah, that that's just inevitable, right? I mean, it's something that it, you say like it's great if you can find you know a good you know spiritual community that has great resources for your kids, but you can't outsource this because you're going to be the spiritual teacher just because of time and presence. Yeah, exactly. You know them best, and you spend the most time with them of any and because, adult. And because all of it really always goes back to values. And that's also, that's another word that's kind of gotten so co-opted, I think, right? That you hear values and you, there's often this kind of presumption of conservative values or whatever values. Um, but values is not laden with that. We, we imbue it with that, but, um, it, that's what it comes down to is what are your family's values around sex, around money, around, um, violence around, you name it. What is your family culture and values around that? Um, and most often then we're looking for churches that sort of already in some way fit our values, right? It's, it's, um, much more rare for people to kind of push outside, although I think more common, but now, but, um, that's what it comes down to. And that's happening at home. You have this great, you're quoting somebody in Quinn Caldwell. Or he, you say he sums up Ash Wednesday in an easy, relatable, all ages way. He says, he's, you summarize it this, he summarizes it this way where you quote him. I'm human, imperfect, unfinished, and that's completely okay. I've made mistakes I feel badly about. I'm not afraid to ask for the help I need. I'm asking forgiveness from God and others. I'm hoping to start over and try again. I, I, I love that. I, I found that so moving. And, and, and you talk about the significance of being able to, in all age ways, give give words and language meaning to these rituals, which are so formative, right? And and so often we we don't do this, <laughs> or if we do it, we do it unreflectively, right? They ask a kid asks us what what this means, and we're not ready for it. We really encourage, hey, this will be great for your spirituality, and will be great for the kids if you can tell them. Uh, 
what this means in a way that, again, loving them in a currency they can spend, it, it will help them and help the whole family spiritually. Right. Well, can we normalize, again, can we normalize confession? Can we normalize vulnerability and being integrated as people and sort of coming clean to each other and coming clean to God? And um, I was raised in the United Church of Christ, progressive Christian tradition. I love it. I have my beefs with it, as we do with, you know, any family in which we're raised. Um, and one of my beefs is that sin is a bad word in in a lot of our churches in the UCC. Um and, you know, I've heard it from folks at all three of the churches I've served that there's a resistance to talking about sin. And I think it's because we're coming to church for better self-esteem, but that's not really anything God can give us. What God wants to give us is God esteem, you know, that unconditional love and acceptance by the one who made us. And the way we get to that, we've already talked about this, is by being that wholehearted, integrated, transparent person with God and with the community of Christ um, that can love us and hold us accountable. And the family is a microcosm of that community of Christ. Um, yeah. You know, in that section of the book that you're talking about, it's a lot about how to bring some rituals and routines um, home or find them in church. And I think I grew up, I often say very Catholic, um, and so it's laden with rituals and routines, right? I, I loved them as a kid, but I was also really given room to question them and kind of challenge them and just say constantly, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I going in this little booth with this guy behind the screen and saying 10 Hail Marys? I don't get it. What's the purpose of this? And I got genuine, real answers from my grandmother, from my dad, from the adults around me who would say, like, here's here's why I do it or here's what I think or I don't know why we do that. <laughs> um, and so they were meaningful rituals and routines to me um, and thoughtful. And so I think it was kind of this aha moment for me when I found the UCC, too, to find that I could find this in another denomination or another practice at church or at home and, and figuring out ways to give it to my kids without all of the, you know, kind of inherent structure and rules of Catholicism. And, the, and the hierarchy, right, of Catholicism. Yeah. Like we actually, in our church in Somerville, we had a person do a confession every week and mm -hmm. then the grace that followed. So they tell a story of when they screwed up or, um, you know, felt like, felt that they let God down and how God kind of got them out of that jam. And it was so healing to hear other people's stories. And this wasn't the worst thing they've ever done. It wasn't their biggest trauma. It was sort of a lot of garden variety moments of spiritual growth. And so we learned from each other. You know, we were the beneficiary of each other's wholeness. Worst thing that you ever did. I mean, that could boost attendance. Like, you should, <laughs> oh, yeah. depending, on, depending on who the egregious <laughs> sinner exactly. was. But. I think it did boost attendance a it little bit. It definitely did. It like, ooh. <laughs> there is a little schadenfreude what there. What juicy morsels are we going to mm -hmm. hear this week? You have that one of you, I forget which one of you, I think, says, has this great thing about how to, how do you talk to your like older kids about going to church? Like, Hey, we go to church in this family and you don't even have to believe in God to go to church. Cause research shows that people that go to church, whether they believe in God, get oh, healthier yeah. and the you can miss occasionally. But I thought it's such a great way of sort of explaining to someone in their more in the stages in adolescence, when they're likely to push back against things. Hey, here's why we do this as a family. And it, it, in a way that here's, here's why, as long as you're part of the, you know, in, in the home until you go out, this is our family ritual. I thought that was, it was a beautiful way to explain the practice. 
Yeah. It's part of that strong container. You know, Richard War says we have to, we kick against the goad as we're learning to become ourselves and parents have to give their kids um, something half good to kick against. Like we can give them something bad to kick against, like being authoritarian a-holes, you know, or we could give them something good to kick against. Like we go to church. That's what we do. And, and they, you know, we talk about swaddling our kids and even teenagers need a swaddle, but a different kind of swaddle. And again, it's that ritual and routine that allows them to feel safe, that allows that like they understand what their family is about and what their family does and what their family's values are. Um, it was interesting because my older kid has been pushing against church for a while. He does like it. And now he goes, he doesn't go every week. I've actually relaxed that. I, I thought I'd push till he was 18. He's 17 and a half. Um, and he comes about once a month now, but he does it voluntarily and he really enjoys it. Um, but probably when he was 12 or 13, I said, this is something we do as a family. And he said, no, mom, we don't do it as a family because you're preaching and dad's taking care of Carmen and then going to meetings and none of it, we're not really there together. Like we're not all sitting in the pew together. And I said, you're right, but you're there with your church family. And that's really important to me. And that's not something I'm going to bend on. You can not, you know, you can have one Sunday a month off to sleep in or go to a sleepover, but this is really important to our family and sort of central to who we are. And he, he fought, but he never really fought that much. You conclude the book with a theology of worry, which I think is, is really significant. And you talk about how we're not demonized when Jesus says, don't worry, he's, you know, you're not demonizing anxiety or worry. It's just saying like, don't, you're inviting people not to be controlled by it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and to make space for it. And, and oftentimes when people don't make space for it is where they are controlled by it, right? It, you, either you overindulge it or suppress it, you know, and you're trying to, you know, it's the whole perfect love drives out fear, right? I mean, why did you choose to conclude the book that way? It's a really interesting choice for me to conclude the book like this with a theology of worry. Um, probably because we, you know, I think it's worry that drives pretty much every negative parenting practice out there, <laughs> um, you know, short of just flat out neglect. Um, I think it's, again, the book is, is written for a certain audience and by us coming from a certain position and place um, in this current parenting culture of parenting books galore and competitive parenting and parenting as a religion. And when that, that kind of parenting goes wrong, I think it is largely because it's out of worry. It's worry for our kids, um, for their literal life and well-being in some cases, or for their success, or will they do as well or better than us, which the reality is, maybe not. Upward mobility has its limits. Um, and we're, you know, facing not only a potential recession at the moment, but, you know, cultural shifts and changes that are going to impact our kids. And it makes sense that we worry about them. But if we let that worry um, dictate our parenting, it's it's a setup for both for both us and our kids. Well, I think that this is it's been a great conversation, and I think that you deal with things like worry in ways that are incredibly healthy, and we don't find in a lot of places either the religious spaces or the secular spaces of our culture. So, thanks for writing this book, and thanks for spending some time talking to me about it. Thanks, thanks for having for, us on, Scott. Yeah, thanks for reading it and leading such a great discussion about it. Uh, hey, pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. 
share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Molly and Ellen for coming on the podcast. Do check out their book, Bless This Mess. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you, my friends, for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, fare thee well.